Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Uh, How many times have you heard somebody say these words? They've looked at you in the eyes and said, well, you do as I say, not as I do right? Is there anything more fun than hearing somebody look at you and say, don't worry about what I'm doing, just you do what I say? Probably the the first time you heard it, you were probably a kid, right? You probably were doing something you were not supposed to do or not doing something you were supposed to do. Probably a parent or some adult in your life, a guardian, looked at you and said, look, you do as I say, not as I, you say right, right now, you do it. And you looked at them and you said, look, you don't do that thing, yeah, maybe it was make your bed. They told you to make your bed. And you said, well, you haven't made your bed. And they said, you do as I say. Don't you worry about what I do, right? And there's almost nothing more infuriating, more frustrating than having someone look at you and, and say something like, do as I say, not as I do. Except maybe the only thing that's more frustrating is when you catch yourself saying it. And, and I, I, was, I was thinking about this. When a person's actions don't match their words, we would say that person lacks what? Integrity. You, you got it. person lacks integrity, they lose credibility. We don't trust or respect somebody who's always going around saying, do as I say, not as I do. And I started turning this in on myself, and I started wondering, right, how many ways might I say that without using those words in my life? And you and I are used to hearing people say things like, you need to practice what you preach, right? Somebody say it with me. Practice what you preach. Now think about for just a minute what it would be like if we inverted that statement and said, you need to preach what you practice. Like, if you were to take the way you actually behave and the way you make decisions and the way you treat people and you were given the task of now go and stand in front of a group of people and justify, this is the way that you should live. That's kind of a scary thought. And the reason I tell you this or I talk about this this morning is because we're studying the pastoral epistles. They are letters. They're three letters written by Paul. They're written to young pastors leading young fledgling churches. And the church at this time didn't have really anything to go on. They didn't have a lineage of church history that gave them an understanding. What does it mean to be a Christian and grow up in Christ and have a legacy that's passed along? They didn't have, their leaders didn't have a library full of books about the Christian life or how to lead others in the Christian life or what Christian doctrine looks like. And so Paul the Apostle writes down these letters letters to Timothy leading in Ephesus and to Titus leading in Crete. And his purpose is to encourage them, to give them a little bit of hope, and and to help them, practically, functionally help them to set up and order and lead the churches that they've been charged with leading. And when we look this morning, we're going to look at Timothy in Titus, or Timothy in Ephesus. So grab your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 4. And he's writing to them essentially to teach them how to church or how to be the church in this world waiting on the day that Jesus returns. So look for 1 Timothy chapter 4. I was thinking about this this week. I think this is a good question, a fair question to ask ourselves. Good question that we might ask with regularity. Uh, I wonder if it would be good advice. Remember when Paul said to, to someone, he said, hey, you imitate me because I'm imitating Jesus, and he was giving a faithful demonstration. I wonder if it would be good advice to say to somebody, hey, do as I say and as I do, right? 
I wonder if that would be good advice for me to say that to someone right now about my parenting or about my, my ministry or about my driving on the highway. I don't know. But I wonder if that would be good advice and if they would be wise to follow my advice for that. You got 1 Timothy 4 ready? Okay, Paul's writing to his young protege, young Timothy, leading the church in Ephesus. He, he's teaching them how, him how to pastor this church, how to lead it. I want to read verse 11 through 16, and then I'm going to show you why I think this is very relevant, not just for a young pastor in the first century, but for every one of us here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Paul writes, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech... In conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Or in other words, be an example of what a Christian should be like. Until I come, give your attention to the public reading, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you for which was granted to you through words of prophecy with the laying on hands by the council of elders. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. All right, so Paul is writing instructions. He's the great apostle Paul writing to young Timothy, trying to figure it out. And he's writing about how Timothy is to conduct himself as a young Christian leader in Ephesus. And Paul knew that it was possible for Timothy as a young Christian leader in this community to be dismissed outright by the people he's been sent to lead. For one thing, he were told that they might dismiss him or disregard his leadership simply because of his age. It says youthfulness in verse 12. And we don't know Timothy's exact age. People have speculated on this. We can speculate with him for just a second. We know in Acts 16, this is when Paul picks Timothy up. He's on a mission trip through, uh, through Timothy's hometown. And he knows that Timothy has become a, a Christian because of the influence and the leadership of his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And he sees Timothy and he says, Timothy, I want you to come with me. We're going to go on mission together. I'm going to train you. I'm going to mentor you. I will make a disciple of you, and I will send you out to lead others also. So that was in Acts 16. 1 Timothy 4 is 14 years later. In Acts 16, Timothy is referred to as a man, a young man. And in 1 Timothy 4, we're concerned about his youthfulness, which is a word in Greek that would be used for someone up to about 40 years old. Doesn't really matter how old he is, but somewhere in that range you get the idea. The point Paul's making is that there are people who are ready to dismiss or disregard or discredit Timothy outright because just looking at him, they don't want to believe him. And Paul says to Timothy that that they may look down on you for your youthfulness And do you know what you can do to make sure no one ever looks down on you, church? But you want the answer to this one. Like, would you like to know how to to keep anyone from ever looking down on you? Yeah, you would. Very simple answer. Give them something to look up to, right? That's almost too simple. Or be someone that they might look up to. And that's what Paul's advice to Timothy is. Can I just tell you this morning that what Paul is going to say to Timothy here, specific advice for his young leadership in this church, is completely applicable to every Christian in the church. It's applicable to your life. 
Because remember what we learned last week, we talked about three rules for churching or three rules for being the church. We were looking at Titus 2. And what did we learn? We learned that everyone, absolutely everyone in the church is essential. Every Christian's life, it's essential that you're here and that you're engaged. And we learned three rules for churching. What was the first rule? Anyone remember it at all? Right way. Run the right way. Right? There's, there's a right way to live in Christ. There's a right way to church. It's not any which way, but you're to be an image bearer of Christ in everything that you do and say that your life should hold integrity with the gospel that has saved you. We run the right way. The second rule was don't leave the field while the game is still going on. Or in other words, there is no retirement. There is no vacation from being a Christian. Like, like it's not time off for good behavior. You, you continue on the field until Jesus returns. And in fact, the things that we aspire to do on our very best days now in Christ are the things that we're to aspire to do every day until Jesus returns. And then we don't retire or take a vacation. Then we do it even better without the trouble and the problem of sin and brokenness and temptation and suffering and pain in our life. We do it in a more perfect manner, in a more perfect way when he returns. And I, I've, I was thinking about how, how Paul is leading these people to lean in to the second coming of Jesus, to his return for the church where he wipes away every tear. And there's no more sickness and no more pain and no more temptations and no more struggles with sin. And I, I remembered a sermon I heard one time where a pastor was talking about leaning in to the return of Jesus. And he said as as he thought about it more and more as he grew with age, he began to taste it. And this is what he said. I'll never forget it. He goes, oh, when I contemplate the return of Christ, sinlessness, oh, I can almost taste it. And he reveled in one day comes where the, the life that he has desired, that he's wanted, that he's hungered after would be satisfied and fulfilled in his experience. And he says, I'm going to live in light of who Christ is making me and where he is taking me. We learned that too last week. And we also learned this, that every person who is a Christian, God has placed you where you are in the situation you are to serve him faithfully right where you are. So we learned these three things last week that all of us are essential here. All of us are to be on mission here. And then I'll roll you back earlier this year when we had a disciple-making series, and I told you this. I said that you cannot not be a leader. You follow that sentence? You can't not be a leader. That the things that you say with your lips and the things that you do with your lives are telling a story, and people around you are learning from you. In fact, if you are in Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, the things that you say with your lips and the things that you do with your life bear significant weight. Here's the weight that it bears. As people share the air that you breathe, as people live life around you, you are shaping their understanding of what the gospel is. You're shaping their view and their perspective of who Jesus is and what matters to him. You are shaping their view of the church, what God's family is really about. You are giving them an understanding of what it means to experience salvation in Christ. Whether you like it or not, if you claim to be in Christ, everything you say with your lips and everything you do with your life is telling a story and affecting the people around you. You can't not be a leader. And so today, 
We're looking at a place where, where these words are written to Timothy who would lead this church and show this church the way that they would go, not only that they would survive their day, but that there would be a church that would come even until this day, and we could continue to learn from their example. And I believe that the words that, that Paul shares with Timothy are completely applicable to your experience because everyone around you is learning the gospel from your lips and your life. You follow me so far? Okay. So the pattern that we're going to look at today shows us how to be a do as I say and as I do kind of people. And it would lead us to be a together a do as I say and as I do kind of church. And I want to encourage you this morning that the kind of life that Paul describes is the kind of life that would people would look up to, not look down on. It would lead people to look up and not look up just to us, but look up to us. And when they look up, they would begin to see Jesus who has saved us and who gives abundant life. And as Paul shares these words, there's really three principles in these verses that are very, very simple if we'll only pay attention to them. And I want you to see this. If you and I are to live lives that people would look up to, the first thing is every one of us in everything that we say or do, we must remember that we are to set a good example, to set a good example. Paul says, verse 12, Timothy, you got to show yourself as an example to everyone who, what a believer looks like. Or in other words, Timothy, in Ephesus, in all of your interactions, not just your stage time, but in all of your behavior and manner throughout Ephesus, as you live life amongst these people, you have to show them the example of a believer. In, in the original language, this word example, I think I left it. Can you throw me that, Patrick, that on top, just the thing on top? Ooh, that was really high and you almost hit me in the face. <laughs> What's this? It's a stamp. The, in the original language, the word for set an example gives you the word picture of, of an ink stamp. And, and some of you, uh, you just have grown up in the digital age and you have no clue what this thing is. Some of you use this for work, but more often than not, you probably just remember this from some time in your past. What you have with the stamp is you have the stamp itself. Here, this is a wooden stamp. It has a, a rubber uh, facing here where a message has been cut into it. A design has been cut into it. And then you have the second part of the stamp, which is once pressed into the ink, you press it onto a piece of paper or some object, and it leaves what? An ink residue that perfectly reflects the designer's intent from the stamp. Does that make sense? And so Paul says to Timothy, what you must do in Ephesus is you must be a perfect stamp of Christ-likeness amongst the people of Ephesus, just as the designer intended for you to look. And Timothy's role as pastor, and for each of you, your responsibility, according to the one another passages in the New Testament, and according to the Great Commission, and according to the line in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors for Christ, which doesn't say that you can sign up to be an ambassador for Christ. It's not that you become a Christian and then fill out some paperwork, and maybe one day you might be an ambassador or you might aspire to be one, but it says once you are in Christ, you are his representative to the world around you. That's who you are. And according to the responsibility that comes with that, our job is more than just imparting information to people. It's more than just telling them what Jesus is like and what it's like to, to have Jesus as your savior or as your leader. Our responsibility is to live a life that demonstrates that he is the Lord of our lives. And so it's about backing up our words with our life. Paul writes to Timothy, you be a good example of what it means to have Jesus rule in your heart. 
And the problem that Timothy might encounter where people might dismiss him or discredit him because his youthfulness in this culture and this situation in Ephesus, that might be overcome when his life, his actions, his manners, his behavior is so like Christ that it gains the attention of the community and it gives weight to his words. It's that he has a life that looks like Jesus. And so Paul tells him in in detail, verse 12, five areas of his life that must be submitted to the lordship of Christ. Five areas of his life that should be marked, it should be a stamp of what it means to be a Christian. And I'll, I'll go through these quickly because... I don't need to, to, to go on and on and belabor this, but I want to mention them. First, he says your speech, the way you talk, should be a good example, a faithful representation of what Jesus is in this world and what Jesus says to this world. Now, this doesn't refer to only Paul or, or Timothy's teaching and preaching ministry. It does include that for sure. But it, it's much more than that. It, it involves everywhere he would speak. I believe that because the Bible talks a lot about our words over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament. The Bible paints the picture that our words have a, an incredible power to them. And one of my favorite verses I memorized a long time ago about this is Proverbs eighteen twenty one. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And I share that a lot in counseling. I share it in premarital counseling. I'll tell a young couple, I'll say, you, you need to understand this and root it into your soul, into your psyche. The way you speak to each other each day when you rise will either kill your spouse or pour life into your spouse. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. James really understood the weight and the power of the tongue. He gave all kinds of word pictures in the New Testament about it. He gave one picture and said that speech, the way we speak, is like the bit in a horse's mouth. I'm allergic to horses, so I'm only working on theory here. I can't go anywhere near them. But let's say this is true. The bit in the horse's mouth is this tiny device that allows the whole angry, scary, allergy-inducing beast to be led in any direction that the rider wants to go. James says that the, the power of speech is like the rudder on, a, on a, a big ship. It's this little part on the back end of the ship that controls the direction and guides the direction of the entire thing through all the resistance that might come by wind and by waves. James says the power of speech is like a flame. He says, see, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. And that's why he warns in James 1.19, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I'll give you one more. Psalm 141.3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. This is an important prayer. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Paul says to Timothy, in all of your interactions, even when you don't think people are listening, the words that you say carry weight. They are speaking to who Jesus is and what this church is about and what it means to be a saved person. So in the way that you speak, do so in a way that is Christ-like. And then he says, it's not just about your words, it's also about your conduct. Your conduct. One of the best ways to teach somebody the truth about what God is like is to show them by living it out in your life. 
We, I think, learn even better by people's example than we do simply by their words. And when we have lives that don't back up our words, we completely discredit anything that we might say. I remember years ago, um, early in my time at Legacy, uh, we were going through some things. We had some changes to make. And I was looking at the end, where were we headed with this? And I was talking to my friend Ryan about it. And I said, Ryan, I think, would you just pray for us? This is where we are. This is where we need to be. And he reminded me of something that I think is very pertinent for that moment and for every moment of our lives. He said, Kevin, you can't just keep the end in mind, but it's how you accomplish the thing, the path you take to getting there that's just as important, if not more important. And that's a really good reminder to us that even in doing the right things, we can do the right things with the wrong manners. Isn't that true? We can do the right things with the wrong manners. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. I have it hanging on my wall in my office. Lindsay gifted gifted it to me years ago. It's by Maya Angelou. She said, I've learned that people will forget what you said. I've learned that people will forget what you did. But man, oh man, people will never forget how you made them feel. What this means to me is that in all of those things, our words, our behavior, and our countenance really matter. It sticks with people. It declares the narrative that rules our life. It declares our allegiance. It declares our doctrine. It declares our identity and our purpose in this life. And and the reason it does this is because when we begin telling people with our lives or with our words, this is what I do, this is what I believe, this is how I am, we are saying, Jesus rules my heart and he has guided me to this position. And man, don't you know we live in such a contentious and argumentative time? There were arguments in this building this morning that took place. I'm not saying I was spying on you or anything, but I know it happened because we're human and that's what we we do. But if we're in Christ, we should hold our opinions very carefully, very loosely. We should make, make sure we have surrendered every word and every action and every attitude to Jesus Christ because when we speak as ambassadors of Christ, we speak declaring not just what I think, but we're saying, I think this because my Lord thinks this. You may not think that you're saying that, but that's what you're saying with your life, with your lips and with your life. And then Paul says this, he adds three words, love, faith, and purity. And these things show yourself an example of what a believer looks like, right? Love is essential to true ministry. You take love out of ministry, what is it? Transference of information. That's it. If I don't love you, if I don't love the church I've, sent, I've been sent to lead, all I'm doing is just giving you intellectual information. Love is what makes it ministry, right? Otherwise, I'm just a speaker. Love is what makes it ministry. Faith is essential to doing God's work. It means not stopping short with the things that I think or I believe or the things that I go, well, this is probably where this is going, but it's me trusting and depending on the things that God has said he desires, the things that God loves, and the things that God promises to do. Knowing that God is good and faithful to fulfill his promises, not remembering all of the time that God fulfills his promises often through using his people to carry out his will. 
Faith is essential to doing God's work, and purity is essential if we're going to represent Jesus to the world. Why is that? Because God is he's just, and He's righteous, and He's pure. In 1 John, we learned He's light, and He's love. And if I'm not cultivating, if I'm not seeking to be purified in my words, and my actions, in my life, then how are people going to believe my message? As Paul says in Love and faith and impurity show yourself an example. In all of your words and all of your conduct, show yourself as a faithful example. And we must purpose to put all of these things in line with God's design if we're to be credible Christians. That the world might look to and say, man, that is beautiful and powerful. And not look at them. There they go again. Second principle here to being a church people can look up to is every Christian here needs to remember you've been gifted for service. Every Christian, at the moment you believed on Christ, you were given spiritual gifts for service. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was granted to you through words of prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Timothy had been given gifts for leading and serving the church. Verse 13, he's told to give your attention to them. Verse 15, take pains in these things, be absorbed in these things. And I want to make sure that we don't miss this before I kind of go on this line about spiritual gifting. Verse 13, pay attention to this. Until I come... Give your attention to the public reading, to exhortation, and teaching. And what I want you to understand is that the Word of God was to be the central component of Timothy's ministry in Ephesus. It was to be central there. That's why everything that we seek to do as a church, everything we would put our time and attention and prayers and money on, we desire and we fight to have a biblical rationale for anything that we might do. It's why that I don't come up here every week and just say, listen, here's Kevin's three nifty thoughts for the week. Go and have fun with them. And you know this, and I know this, that there are preachers and pastors who do that. They walk up and say, I have some great advice for living your life. And it's tweetable, and you should go and live by it. I remember years ago, years and years ago, almost 15 years ago now, Lindsay and I were visiting a church on a Sunday. And I won't tell you where it was, even though I think the pastor's changed by now. But, but we went into this church the building looked nice from the outside. It was, it was kept well. It was neat. The parking lot was big. We had a good spot with visitor, you know, guest parking marked. And so we didn't have a long walk to get inside. People greeted us when we came in. They were very friendly. Not overly friendly, kind of like weird and oogie. But like they, they wanted you to know we're glad you're here. And we came into the room and sat down. And the people around us were warm. We felt like we could belong here. And the music was good. The songs seemed to be rich in doctrine and theology, they were singable, they were catchy, they were fun. And then the pastor got up. And listen, it was a 10-point sermon, but he did it quickly. It was good. It was good. He was intelligent. He was credible in, in the, the kinds of advice that he was giving. He was creative, very easy to listen to. But the problem was he never touched the Bible. He never touched it. I mean, like it was spiritual-sounding. And he loosely referenced some different passages in the Bible to build up or prop up this point. But none of it was an exposition of Scripture. None of it was saying, what did God mean when he spoke these words through this person to this other person? And what might we learn about the nature of God and about the nature of man and how we might go through this life by it? 
not at all. And the problem is it's not worth my time. It's not worth my attention to see some fallible figure tell me what he thinks I ought to do with my life. What a waste of time. What a bunch of, of foolishness. But it is everything to me. I mean everything to know that the God of this universe who made everything and knows everything and knows me and loves me and wants more for me that I could understand or want for myself, that he has said, let me reveal myself to you. My heart and my mind and my will. Let me show you the way that you might go. So Paul says to Timothy, let the word of God be central in your community, central in your ministry. This applies to Timothy's life, his teaching and preaching, but it applies to to every one of us. How many of us are sitting at coffee with a friend or at lunch or have someone say, I'm struggling with something, and we just start to give them Christian, you know, truisms. We placate them with some cliches that sound pseudo-spiritual and probably are a misappropriation of the Word of God in some way that we don't even understand because we didn't take time to pray or take time to think about it, right? So as we are interacting with one another, let's be centered by the, the Word of God and not just, yeah, whatever I'm thinking or feeling because that changes with whatever I had for lunch, doesn't it? Okay, spiritual gifts. He says, and this is a huge principle here, you've been gifted for service. Do not, verse 14, do not, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. And whatever your gifts may be, whatever they might manifest themselves as, do not neglect using them and using them generously. The word neglect here means to be careless or unconcerned about spiritual gifts. And I've seen a lot, and I mean a lot of Christians, be careless and unconcerned about spiritual gifts, like it's a minor thing in the Bible, or it's a thing like, yeah, you know, I became a Christian, and then when I grow up and and really understand some things of God, then maybe he'll give me some gifting, and I can begin to use it for service. That's called bad theology, not to mention bad practice in your life as a Christian. The the fact is, in, in Peter, 1 Peter 4, Peter talks about spiritual gifts as not just being like, oh, teaching or encouraging or giving or serving or, you know, compassion or something like this. He says you're stewarding the manifold grace of God when you use spiritual gifting. That the abundant, overflowing grace of God which saves a man or a woman or a child is stewarded by you when you use your spiritual gifting. And Paul wrote a lot about spiritual gifts in in his letters. I want to point you to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 7, Paul says this. He says that each one of you, every one of you, when you believed on Christ, were given spiritual gifting according to Christ's measure. It's not something that you earned or you developed later. It was given to you. That doesn't mean that you immediately recognized it or understood it, knew what it was, began using it, developing it, practicing it. It doesn't mean that you're good at it yet. It just means that it's there. It's Ephesians 4, 7. And then it goes on to say, after you were gifted with spiritual gifts when you believed on Christ, then you were wrapped up neatly in a gift box and you were made a gift. First you were gifted and then you became the gift given to the church. First gifted, then you are the gift. And here's the purpose of it. Ephesians 4, 12. The purpose of the gifting is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You're given a gift to help the church grow in Christ's likeness. Verse 14, 
as we do this, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. There may be any number of reasons why you don't use your spiritual gift. But Paul, his point is, you have been given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ, to help the rest of us to become more like Jesus in the things that we say, the things that we pursue, and the things that we do with our life. And when you use your gifts for God's glory, you are teaching by example. And when you neglect to use your spiritual gifts, you're undermining your own message. The story that you're telling isn't a faithful story to the gospel. It would be as if Jesus came to earth and didn't give his life away, but he came and he kept his life for himself. That's the story that you would be telling if you neglected to use your spiritual gifting. You see that? Okay, last thing. To be a church of people that would be looked up to and be pointing to a faithful picture of Jesus Christ, we must be committed to never stop growing spiritually. Never stop growing up spiritually. Verse 15, Paul's encouragement, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress, sounds like a humanistic word a lot of times because we always feel like we're pushing each other to hit a new standard, a new step, but this is a, a, a word from the Lord from, through the apostle to the young Christian. You're supposed to progress and your progress should be evident to all. Take pains with these things. That's the exact opposite as neglect as being unconcerned completely. It's be fully absorbed in it. Warren Wearsby, uh, he said this. He said this meant that Timothy's spiritual life and Timothy's ministry were to be the absorbing, controlling things in his, not, in his life, not merely sidelines that he occasionally practiced. It's good advice. Jesus had good advice too. He said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't half-heartedly be devoted to, Jesus, to, to the Lord or something else. You're always going to do nothing if you try to do everything. You cannot serve God in wealth. And there are way too many, and I'll call them first, pastors. There are way too many pastors I'll call out first. And then way too many Christians who are trying to live like this. Lord... You are my God, you are my Savior, you are my God, you are the King of my heart. But I'm still going to kind of do my life the way I want in a lot of areas. I mean, I'll try not to be too bad. Or a pastor who says, I'm committed to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but really they're building their own kingdom. Jesus says you can't do that. It doesn't work this way. And Paul says to Timothy, you have to give your entire self, you have to care so much about the gospel that has saved you and representing that to the people around you that you are fully and wholly given over to that in your life. You can't set an example of what Jesus, like, Jesus is like if you're living half-heartedly as a Christian. You're not really setting an example unless people can set your, see your progress. That's an odd thing. It's an awkward thing to say because we want to be humble. We want to be full of humility. We don't want the spotlight to be shown on us. But again, what progress is it that we want people to see? Christ alive in us. At the end of the day, we have to ask, 
does my life reflect that I've embraced Jesus as the Lord of my life, right? People in my neighborhood, the people at work, the people at school, if they look at me, do they go, there is something Christ-like about this person. It's way too easy to hold on to pieces of our lives. And I realize as, as human beings, it's in our nature because we were created as spiritual beings. We want purpose. We want to, to taste and see and experience something greater than ourselves. We want a sense as moral creatures of doing the right thing. And so we will come to a moment where we say, I'm cool with this gospel stuff. Because, you know, I like the grace and the love aspect of Jesus. Or I want to attach myself to something. Or there are some morals that travel with the gospel that, that really prop up something I'm already comfortable with in my life. And I like that. So I'm cool with this Christian thing. But there are just certain areas of my life where, I mean, I don't know that the Bible really means that, does it? And we begin to justify. And we begin to cut out and segment areas of our life that we do not submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the deeper question then would be for me is do I really want God? Is that what I'm wanting or not? Am I just wanting to kind of have my finger on something bigger than myself or do I want to have a God who rules my life? Do I, I just want to have a cliche, generic, moralistic, spiritualistic life or do I want to be submitted to Jesus as my Lord and to be transformed into his image? You know, 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about this, how the Holy Spirit is transforming us. I, I was thinking about in college, oh man, probably sophomore year of college, I was working at a really big church, like 300 plus youth, and I was an intern, so I'm like the lowest of the low on the totem pole. But it was the delight of my life, and I had no greater pride than I'm serving in this youth ministry. And it was probably sophomore year. I'd been there a year and a half. Any free time, all free time I had, I spent at the church building preparing for ministry or hanging out with youth or hanging out with the other interns, and I kind of made it my everything. And one day, a guy named Russell, who was a few years older than me, came to me and said, hey, Kevin, can you tell me something that the Lord has been doing in your life lately? How has he grown your faith? And I answered quickly, probably too quickly. Didn't really think, I just responded. And I told him a, a story, and I probably went on as long as I've preached today telling him this story. And, and I, I told him about what the Lord had done in my life recently and the lessons I had learned from it and how it was changing me. The, the, the problem was this story was about something that had happened several years ago when I was a, a teenager still in my youth ministry. And Russell looked at me and said, Kevin, that's awesome, man. I'm so, so encouraged the Lord is teaching you that. Can you tell me anything more recent than that? And that's when I kind of froze. And I'd ask you this morning, what's the last new thing that God has grown or developed in your life of faith? You know, what's the last experience of, of, I mean, real growth in Christ-likeness that you can see the Holy Spirit doing in your life? Is it something that happened five years ago, ten years ago, six months ago? Do you believe that you're still growing now? Are you growing still? That's the message of 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says the Holy Spirit is transforming us presently, actively transforming us as we're focused on a clear view of who Jesus is and what our life in Christ is. He's transforming us into Jesus' image 
the way Jesus would think and the way what Jesus would say and the kind of life Jesus would live from one degree of glory day by day. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. In 1 John, we just studied 1 John. We find in 1 John was that chapter 3 tells us that we're children of God. But it says that we don't necessarily look like his children all the way. I mean, we don't look like Father God or Brother Jesus perfectly now. But it says one day we will. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, sanctification. We're desiring hungering after Christ's likeness in our life, and we're asking the Holy Spirit to continue cultivating that in us. Come back to the stamp. Raise your hand if you've never used a stamp. I mean, it's, that's possible. So you, you're familiar with the experience of a stamp. You're familiar with having a stamp that's been used a lot. It's been used quite a bit, and it hasn't gone back to sink the rubber stamp into the ink to be resaturated with the message it's intended to convey, right? And what happens, it, it becomes faded more and more so you can't tell what it, it, it's meant to say or what, what it's meant to represent. You've had the experience with a stamp that only got partially covered by ink and it was stamped nice and dark and heavy and no one missed that it was there, but it was only a partial image, now unrecognizable, now maybe unintelligible from the original design or the intent of the design. Too many Christians and too many churches are living this way when it comes to their walk with Jesus Christ. Paul says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Perseverance and sanctification is almost the entire being a good example message. Like we're not here to demonstrate perfection. We're here to demonstrate dependence and continual growth in Christ as we're welcomed further up and further in to abundant life. Perseverance and sanctification, that's the whole ball game of being a good example. Let me ask you, do you want to be a part of just some religious community that's always trying to just survive and make it? More frequently today being marginalized, maybe being dismissed, discredited, canceled because of you know what we espouse or what we believe goes along with what we espouse the kind of life that we're called to live or do you want to be a part of a soulfully rich christian community that that dares to live by faith how audacious of us <laughs> this strives for beauty and wonder and delights in each other and desires to see the world turned completely upside down in the most wonderful ways for the glory of God. Do you want to be a church that like we just survive into the next season and figure out how to reform as some kind of animal that, that is fighting for life? Or do you want to be a, the kind of a church that people look at and say, by golly, that is something to look up to. Well, if that's what you want to be a part of, Paul has said to Timothy and to the earliest of, of, of our people, he said, well, you've got to remember in all things, everything you say and do and the way you do it, you're an example of the gospel. You're an example of the design marked on us by Christ. So remember that you're a good example. Don't neglect using your spiritual gifts. This is the way we build each other up in Christ's likeness. And then finally, don't stop growing spiritually. And Paul ends this passage, this section of the letter by saying this. 
Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and those who hear you. I want to give you a couple of other translations of this. Listen to the nuances. Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the sake of those who hear you. And this one's my favorite one. I put this on my wall when I came to Legacy. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. How's your life and your doctrine? How's your life and your doctrine? Let's be committed together, church, to be a do as I say and as I do church that would point people's eyes up and not just to us doing well, but to us pointing to Christ who welcomes all into abundant life in his name. And what we see here in the end of that phrase is not only when we do this are we working out our own salvation, or in other words, living out and more into the experience of abundant life, the joy, the delight, the power of being saved. But we also become participators in the salvation story of people around us as we set an example for them of Christ-likeness. We get to be a part of their salvation story by the grace of God. Yeah, let's pray. Father, this morning... I'm grateful for these very practical words from Paul to a young Christian leader and for the church. I'm grateful that you would give us the clearest and simplest picture of how to walk in abundant life, how to have a life of integrity where our, our life flows out of the gospel which saved us. It's simple to explain, but for some reason for us it's so hard to do. So would you help us, Holy Spirit? Would you help us to submit our lives fully? Would you help our minds and our hearts to become convinced that until we do, we'll never really taste the beauty and the wonder of abundant life? Help us to be like that pastor who said sinlessness. Oh, I can almost taste it. And help us to live lives in line with that desire that we might grow in Christ-likeness, living an abundant life, and that we might be a faithful representation, ambassador of you in the world, that others might see us and praise our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.